All right, everybody. Welcome to the Wayward Podcast. Where there is a word, there is a way. This is going to be the third episode in our series on trusting God. In the first episode, we looked at the salvation event whereby God delivered the Israelites from out of slavery in Egypt. And the central message to that was not so much about trusting God, but that God's salvation demonstrates God's trustworthiness and establishes the foundation upon which our trust may be built. And then in the second episode, we zoomed into that salvation event to examine seven ways it demonstrated God's trustworthiness. And so now that we've covered how how God demonstrated his trustworthiness and established a, um, a foundation for us to build upon in relationship with God, today we're going to move forward. So, after the Red Sea uh, salvation event, there are three consecutive incidents that take place in Israel's journey towards Mount Horeb. In each of these events, they kind of work like a rubber-meets-the-road experience to develop Israel's capacity to trust God. And since these stories are structured in three sequential incidents— It implies that there are structures and patterns at work, so we're going to look at these stories through the lens of those structures and then look at what wisdom might be gleaned from these stories that can help develop our own capacity for trusting God. So if you have your Bibles, our first story is going to begin in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. And so... um, And the basic structure of each of these stories is that A, the Israelites are on the move, B, the Israelites encounter a problem, C, the Israelites have a reaction to that problem, and D, God responds to both the problem and the Israelites' reaction. So all three of these stories follow this basic structure, and so so will we. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all the actual verses. I'm just going to uh, cover the story using uh, that structure. So, beginning in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, the Israelites set out. They are moving from the Red Sea into the wilderness of Shur, and three days in, they encounter a problem. They can find no water. So, this is a need. That has arisen, and it's a need that is essential for life. And such a need, especially for in an entire large nomadic company of people, creates tension and strain, stress, worry, and anxiety. When life happens, tension happens. And in verse 23, they come to Mera, which had water springs, but In this case, the water was bitter. So now there is increased pressure. And when pressure intensifies, tempers strain. So in verse 24, the people react. 
complaining against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And it's understandable because when tension happens and tempers strain, people want wisdom. They want answers and solutions. So in verse 25, Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord shows him a piece of wood. So Moses uh, threw it into the water, and the water became sweet, and the people drank. So the immediate problem was resolved. But there is a larger problem that needs to be resolved. And that is the problem of what are God's people to do? When needs arise, tension increases, pressure mounts, and tempers inflate. What are the people of God to do when that happens? And if we look at the end of verses 25 through 26, it says uh, there in the verses, There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. These verses clarify three things. One, they frame such tensions or pressured situations as settings for tests. Two, they establish a standard for taking God seriously. Listen to and listen carefully to and obey deliberately what God says. And third, they specify that the test is what we do with that standard during the moments of tension. So the real test is when those needs come, when that tension tightens, and when that pressure expands or those tempers flare, will you take God seriously? So after God establishes this standard, in verse 27, the company of Israel, they come to a place called Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and palm trees. So relieved, they... They camp there by the water in the shade, and they refresh themselves. So, you know, now, in and of itself, this is a nice little lesson. There was a problem, tensions rose, God solved it, and, you know, gave them a lesson. So, nice. But because life keeps moving, the tensions keep appearing. In the next story, in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 36, a second need arises. In verse 1, the company of Israel sets out again and comes into the wilderness of sin. In verse, uh, verses 2 through 3, another problem arises. This wilderness environment is a place of natural strain, with heat, little food, overexposure to the elements, and the whole congregation complains again at Moses and Aaron. This complaint is a bit more dramatic than the last one. This complaint contains 
a bit of a warped way of seeing things. In this complaint, the people begin to glamorize their time in Egypt. They're so hungry that they're thinking back to when they sat around pots of meat or stew and dipped their bread in and ate. And I'm not sure if it was just like that or if they're just glamorizing or misremembering their experiences. But the point is, is that the people are claiming that slavery was preferable to the heat and the hunger they are now experiencing in freedom. And so intense is their hunger that they begin to mischaracterize this gift of salvation and freedom, accusing Moses and Aaron of bringing them to the wilderness to just kill them with hunger. A real and common temptation we see surface here is that when tension and frustration drive our desire for answers and solutions that we want, it can easily become rationale and justification for questioning or impugning God's trustworthiness, which can easily make us forget why God is trustworthy, chipping away at the foundation God establishes in us. So in verse 4 through 5, the Lord provides a solution. And that solution will be providing Israel with manna in the morning and meat in the evening. But this solution comes with a caveat or a few conditions. Israel must go out and gather it each morning, only as much as each family needs. They must not save any for the following morning. But on the sixth day, they must collect double so they have enough for the next day Sabbath when they are to rest. So why these conditions? In verse 4, the Lord says that in that way I will test them, whether they will follow my instruction or not. So like we saw in the previous story, the real test is what we do with the standard during the moments of tension. In this situation, the standard is is to cooperate with the conditions of God's provision. So the real test is, will they trust God, then go out and gather only as much as they need? Or will they not trust God and be greedy? So how it goes down in verses uh, 6 through 21 is that some people gathered more, some gathered less, but when it was all measured out with, a, I think, an omer, uh, everyone basically had the same amount. But even after Mo- Moses told them to eat it all and not save it, some people kind of still saved some for the next day. Kind of scarcity thinking kind of going on right there. But by next morning, it was spoiled. In this angered Moses. Why? One, they were disobeying and not cooperating with the condition God placed on the provision. But two, getting more to the heart of the problem, it demonstrated that these people were not yet revering and trusting God. And then on the sixth day, when they were supposed to gather double to provide Uh, for the next day Sabbath, some of the people 
they didn't, and they went out on the Sabbath morning to find manna when there was none, because God was not working on the Sabbath either. And to their, obe- to their disobedience, God asked Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. So here we have to ask, what is the deal with the Sabbath? And how does it relate to learning to trust God? So let's go back to chapter 16, verses 6 through 7. And in those verses, it says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? These verses are painting a majestic picture of God inhabiting the times of the day. In the evening, the provision of meat is a revelation and reminder of God's trustworthiness. And in the morning, the provision of manna for bread is a revelation and a re-verification of God's continuing glorious worth. It's a picture that God is going to saturate the times and rhythms of each day with His presence and power. Similar to the six days of uh, creation framework, God is going to work with and amongst His people. Through the working of His presence and power, God is going to meet His people's needs. But on the Sabbath, when God rests, God's people are also to rest, enjoying the blessedness of living in worshipful rhythm with their good and glorious God. That is how trust is nurtured and developed. Learning to abandon the world's ways of hurry and worry by leaning into and living within the redemptive rhythms with the God with whom we are in relationship. When the tensions of life arise, living in these rhythms of relationship with God are how the tensions are navigated, addressed, and dealt with. But if we don't live in these relationship rhythms, we're going to be living outside of those rhythms that God has established for His people. Put another way, if trusting God is not becoming a way of life for us, we're choosing tension and nerve-wracking uncertainty and anxiety and mounting pressure and exploding tempers as our preferred way of life. And as life keeps moving on, the danger is normalizing this anxiety-ridden way of life, which, for Israel was starting to become a thing. So in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, the third story begins with the company of Israel moving on, and they come to a place called 
Rephidim. And again, there was no water for the people to drink. So it's like full circle. They've arrived back at the same problem they started out with. And now we are going to see if they've learned to trust God by now. In verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Give us water to drink. Moses asked, Why do you test the Lord? What is this test that Moses speaks of? Down at the bottom in verse 7, it is clarified that the people had been saying, Is the Lord amongst us or not? So again, the need has created tension. And in verses 3 through 4, the pressure pushes the people to complain against Moses and again to mischaracterize their freedom and God's mission. At his wit's end, Moses cried out to the Lord, fearing that the people were about to stone him. And in verses 5 through 6, the Lord's solution was to tell Moses to take Israel's elders to go on ahead to Horeb, where the mountain of God was located. There, God said, I will be standing there in front of you. So taking the staff that struck the Nile River when God showed the Egyptians that he was the source of life, Moses was told to strike the rock at Horeb and water would flow so that the people might drink. So Moses did all these things. But why this detail about the elders? Why did Moses bring the elders on ahead with him? I can think of a few reasons God told Moses to take Israel's elders on ahead with him. One, to prevent Israel's hysteria from spilling over into and infecting the elders who helped manage Israel's temperature. Two, so the Lord could answer the people's demand and show his presence among them, but only in a way that could be answered by continuing on in trust. It would leave the lesson that if you put your energy and momentum into trusting God instead of testing God, you will eventually encounter God on the way. And third, Sometimes when God's people are unable to trust God, the leaders of God's people have to be able to. So when the rest of Israel catches up, the elders can confirm it to them that God is amongst them and that God has once again used Moses to provide. This incident concludes in verse 7 with Moses naming the locations. Massah and Meribah, which mean test and quarrel, because they tested the Lord there. This pattern of not trusting God is starting to define who they are becoming. Not trusting God is becoming normalized. And sadly, in this case, it's becoming a legacy they are leaving behind. But as a friend recently reminded me, it is not the intention of this text to look down on Israel for their failure to trust, because that is a legacy that all of us leave behind at times. We all struggle to trust God. The intention 
of this text is to challenge its readers to examine ourselves to choose whether or not we will trust God. So having looked at each of these stories, now we're going to explore what wisdom these stories may offer for expanding and empowering our capacity to trust God and thrive in relationship with God. So, uh, first, remember why God is trustworthy. All of these incidents begin just days after seeing God perform great acts of salvation. And yet, when these problems emerge and the tensions rise, Israel seems to have difficulty remembering why God is trustworthy. And throughout these stories, there's little references, there, there's there's little references to God's salvation act, God's salvation acts dropped uh, for the people to help jog their memory. There's uh, throughout the stories, there's like little moments that just kind of harken back to what happened at, at the Red Sea or to the Nile, to all those moments where God rescued them. And those moments are meant to kind of uh, provoke Israel's memories so that they may remember why God is trustworthy. So if we desire to expand and empower our capacity to trust God, it must begin and continue with keeping God's trustworthiness central to our reality of faith. Second, lean into life's varying tensions and testings with the knowledge that God's presence, power, and trustworthiness is unvarying and constant. One of the repeating patterns of this of these problems that the Israelites experience is that the levels of tension fluctuate. The tension of the first story is challenging on one level, but then the tension of the second story is much harder and seems to indicate that this level of difficulty will be experienced with more regularity. But then the third story's difficulty seems to compare more to that of the first one. So while the levels of tension and difficulty in each of these stories vary, as it does in life, the trustworthiness of God does not. God's trustworthiness remains unchanging. And if we can accept that, we can lean into life's challenges empowered in our relationship with God. Third, Choose to trust and obey God's revealed words and wisdom. God gave Israel a standard to guide them during tense moments. But when those tense moments when those tense moments come, we still have to choose to embrace that standard. Trusting God is not a neutral occurrence. It is a choice we make together with our faith. This is why it's necessary to remember why God is trustworthy. When the tension arrives, that foundation fortifies our faith 
and empowers our capacity to choose to rely on God's trustworthiness. That's how we learn to take steps of trust. Fourth, beware and avoid nostalgic temptations to glamorize what God freed you from. When life's tensions and pressures increase and our desire for answers and solutions are frustrated, our desire to escape the tension will tempt us to entertain memories of easier times that may ignore the broader and darker story that was going on and may also misrepresent the better story of freedom that God is trying to form in you now. Don't let your untrained mind and body trick you out of the truth that God, that where God is taking you is better than where you were. Fifth, routinely practice living and resting in God's trustworthiness by conforming your habits and patterns of living to God's redemptive rhythms. By providing for them in the mornings and evenings, God entered the daily rhythms of life to give His people their daily bread and meat, which they were to cooperatively manage. On Sabbath days, they were to rest along with God in order to pause, reflect, give thanks, and celebrate God's goodness unfolding in their lives. These story beats form the rhythm of redemption that would transform God's people into a people who are able to trust. We can experience the same transformation as we let ourselves rest in God's trustworthiness while moving through every daily task, unhurried and unworried, inhaling, exhaling, God's stream of grace. Sixth, beware of questioning God's presence. Yes, it happens. But it will not help your mind make sense of the tension. It will only warp your mind and heart's ability to manage the tension, further intensifying the pressure, straining your temper, and gradually normalizing your doubt until indifference disconnects you from God completely. Yes, it tends to happen. And if it does happen, that's okay. Let it become a moment where you lean into God's trustworthiness again. And let that be a moment for you to strengthen your grip upon the one who holds you. Seventh, pause the panic by separating yourself from the voices of tension and immerse yourself, immerse your mind into the presence of God. 
just as God told Moses to remove the elders from the hysteria of the people and go to Horeb, where God's presence was at work, learning to trust God means learning to occasionally turn off all the noise of those and those making it and practice the Lord's presence through prayer, through the reading of the word through the offering of audible praise and thanksgiving and receiving God's refreshment. Then you will be equipped and empowered to re-encounter the tension with your soul re-fortified and fueled with the faithfulness of God. 8. Be open and willing to benefit from the faith of experienced followers. Learning to personally develop our faith and practice practice endurance is good. But at some point, we won't be able to do it by ourselves or on our own strength. And this is because God did not design us to go it alone. Try as we might, faith is not supposed to be practiced in isolation, but in relationship with the community of God's people. So when the tensions become overwhelming and you're being stretched too far, learn to turn your learn to turn to your mothers and your fathers and your older siblings in the faith. They've been where you're at and they know the way out. And finally, number 9, consider and choose the legacy you want to leave behind for future followers to learn from. Just as all of these tense moments become opportunities for the Israelites to choose to trust, we leave a legacy with how we deal with life's tensions. Learn to choose for yourself this day. Will you be remembered for how you tested God's patience? or how you trusted in God's goodness. Again, it is not the intention of this text, or my intention, to look down on you or any of us for our frequent failures to trust. But it is the intention of these texts to show you and all of us that learning to trust God is possible. Because our God who is greater than all the tensions we will face, has revealed his vast trustworthiness as a way of life that we may inhabit and be held by as we move into and through all these moments that make much of our God who saves and heals us. I want to thank you very much for joining me today on the Wayward Podcast. As I've been saying, where there's a word, there is a way. Where there is a trustworthy God, there is a power. There is our power to trust. Have a good day.